Hello, this is Rob Behrens here, welcoming you to Radio Ombudsman number 28. We've been going for a long time and it's a pleasure to be with you again. I have a special guest this morning, the new and distinguished uh, board member of PHSO, Polly Curtis. Polly, you're extremely welcome. Thank it's you. so lovely to be here. Thanks, Rob. As we'll find out, Polly has the most distinguished and interesting career. It goes across many sectors. You're a journalist. You're a media executive, you're an author, you're a social campaigner, and many other things as well. So I'm interested to ask you questions about how you've moved from one to the other. And, and uh, I'm also interested about your frank views about the Ombudsman Service and what you've found since you arrived. Fantastic. So as is the tradition on this programme, we begin by asking people about their early years I think you come from Camden, is that right? That's right, I'm um, a North Londoner. <laughs> North London, and I'd be interested to know your background and the values that you got as, as a young person. Well, thank you, Rob. It's absolutely lovely to be here. And I'll, I'll talk a bit about kind of my background. I grew up in Camden, big family, the four of us, loud family, one of those houses that lots of people came in and out of. And... Um, my parents ran a party shop. So party, they ran party a party shop. Wow. They sold balloons and they, it, they had the slogan, the best little party shop in North London. Uh. And it was in an amazing place to have a party shop in North London because it was on the border of Hampstead and of an area called Gospel Oak and Kenchtown. And Hampstead was full of pop stars and authors and extremely rich people. Jonathan Ross used to come in and buy everything for his Halloween party. But the people who spent the most money in that little party shop were all the people who lived in the acres of estates on the other side of the shop. So this shop was sat in this little niche that served the full diversity of North London. And I think kind of that was very much my experience growing up, a really socially mixed experience of a London life where I knew lots of people from lots of different backgrounds. And um, that really shaped my worldview, I suppose. So in terms of equality, equity, kind of fairness, I think I've always seen the systems that have power in people's lives through that kind of social economic lens. That's something that comes out of your book, you know, the the importance of people and how they interact with sisters, but we'll come on to that. But when you were thinking about studying and, and, and your career, you weren't immediately attracted to journalism, I don't think. Oh, no way, because journalism is something that, you know, clever people did, confident people did, like people who came from different places like and, and had different experiences and so when, when I was at university I kind of got the, a kind of sideline job on the um, student newspaper doing the travel pages and it was because in my heart of hearts I was quite drawn to this world but also didn't see myself in it and I saw all the blokes that ran the news section I was just like that's not my world but it's what I was interested in and I wrote it I wrote some travel pieces and, you know, it's totally gendered. It was like the kind of things, oh, that's the kind of thing I could do. I can do features. Features are probably where I, I fit into it. And, of course, it absolutely wasn't feature. I'm a news person. I seek out stories um, and I get scoops. You know, that's what I did as a journalist when I was when I was reporting. 
And I remember graduating from university and having this massive crisis of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I don't know what. And I actually had that crisis all through my teens as well. What GCSEs? I'm going to, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. Just and remind us what you studied at university. I stud- First, I studied um, development studies with politics. Again, because I was quite interested in politics, but saw it as something kind of a bit out of my league. And I'd been traveling and I really wanted to save the world. So I did development studies. And over the course of my degree, I switched that and did politics with development studies in the end because it's the politics I was really interested in. And um, so when I graduated, I was like, well, I do really, really like this journalism thing. And I remember making a really conscious decision. And actually, the one journalist I knew in my own network, a friend of my sister's, took me out for dinner. And she told me that actually journalism had to be really meritocratic because you lived or died on the story you did so actually it was whether you were good at it ultimately and yes some people got there faster and were more confident but um I I really kind of heard what she said and I remember really consciously applying to do a journalism course and go going to myself I'm gonna put the blinkers up like a horse I'm not gonna listen to all that noise and you know to my own insecurities and and to all the swagger and confidence around me in this world because I'm just going to give myself a shot at this. And I remember thinking that that image of let's put the blinkers up, let's focus. And that's something I've always said to younger journalists, people starting in journalism, like just cut out that noise. The competition will kind of, it will make you feel really insecure, especially if you're not from the worlds that have traditionally inhabited journalism and politics. So... In your early jobs, did you experience discrimination or stereotyping? I think I've seen it and experienced it at every level of my career. I think it is still just baked in. And over the course of my career, it has, you know, there's been a a kind of revolution in how we understand discrimination and inclusivity, I think, in journalism, I think kind of it's the inclusivity bit that's really different because you're so often in conversations with people who share a language and share experience. And so I think inclusivity is is kind of the major channel, um, challenge in journalism. So I think I've, I've seen it, I've definitely experienced it at some points kind of throughout my career. How did you deal with it? Because that's a theme yeah. on this program that we have very successful people, many women, mm-hmm. who have different strategies for for dealing with yeah. that. So when I didn't have power, I didn't deal with it. I rolled with it. And as I, you know, slowly, I mean, power sounds very grand, but as I kind of, accumulated responsibility and and power in the workplace which is hiring and managing and directing I tried to use it differently to kind of change things as well I think I still feel guilty I didn't do that sooner and more earlier in my career I think it was hard when you're quite often the only woman in in the room you know I think in the earlier parts of my careers I, I think I sometimes just rolled with what was going on I I feel guilty about that now but but then once I was in kind of hiring positions and then when I was in leadership positions I've always put it quite explicitly at the heart of 
the strategies I've run because it has to be at the heart of changing journalism because if you don't reflect the audiences you serve, if you don't understand the question that's going to be in the audience's mind, then you can't serve them and you become more and more irrelevant. So uh, I think it's I've always made it a kind of central part through diversity strategies, through hiring, through working with industry bodies on initiatives to improve diversity, and then culturally in organisations to try and create inclusive workplaces. And I'm sure I've not always got that right, but I think I've always tried. You, you a distinguished journalist on The Guardian. Do you have a standout story, scoop that you reflect on or were there so many that you can't remember? Do you know what? There was th- there were a lot. I was I was definitely a policy journalist. So I did education, health, social affairs, and then I was Whitehall correspondent working in the Guardian's Westminster team. So you don't tend to in those roles do kind of the the you know the in in the time I was there, there was the kind of hacking story. There was Snowden. There were was Wiki, um, WikiLeaks. You know, the Guardian did some extraordinary stories that I was involved in, kind of peripheral ways, particularly when I was doing political reporting. But I think what I'm proud of is kind of the quality of policy reporting that was happening at that time. Really getting inside debate so that you could expose things, kind of look at what was going wrong in the system, but also try and drive positive change as well. I remember as education correspondent kind of going to other countries to see how other places were doing it and bringing those ideas back into the dialogue here and really trying to kind of drive systems improvement as well as kind of hold to account. And there was a kind of real nuance to policy reporting then, which I think, you know, sadly, I think not in any means just the guardian and i think the guardian's better than most but has been squeezed out a bit in the pressures on news so i'm i think i'm proud of some of the themes i followed kind of so you know going back to kind of my early experiences so in education when i was reporting on education kind of prior to 2010 that was when the stories around diversity in schools results were, were first really being talked about. And so I did quite a lot of early data journalism looking at how inequality played out in the education system that, you know, I'm quietly proud of, it's great. of that. But <laughs> one of the interesting things about you is many people would have been happy to have been a lauded Guardian journalist and that would be their career but you've moved on and you've done a lot of other things as in different types of media you've gone to Huffington Post you've gone to Tortoise PA you've done a lot of big jobs Mm. so what drove you to do these things? Curiosity I'm a bit of a magpie I love the learning you get in every job and in every different team you work in and in every different model you work in so If you look at the different organisations I've been involved in leading one way or the other, they're very different models. Yeah. I think you also went to the Red Cross. I went to the Red Cross. So when I left the Guardian, I thought I was was very much a Guardian reporter. Guardian, you know, I'd bleed the Guardian if you cut me. And, um, And I thought I'm going to take all my journalistic skills and apply it to 
an organisation whose mission I believed in. So I went to the Red Cross and had an extraordinary year at the Red Cross um, as director of media because another Manchester link, it was the year of the Manchester bombings, the London Bridge attacks and of Grenfell as well, which we ran campaigns and operationalised support services around each of them. So I had this extraordinary year, kind of learnt a huge amount, but it, it kind of also taught me that I wanted to be exposing things and telling the story and it was a brilliant place to work but I went back to journalism and ran Huff Post in the UK and it kind of comes back to that red top point Huff Post for me I felt that in the digitization of news we were losing quality news for broad audiences and a lot of kind of quality journalism for want of a better word and was going up behind paywalls and creating kind of these kind of closed worlds where people had access to really great news while everyone else was kind of left to kind of <laughs> fight at, through the information on social media where it's really hard to to understand what sources of information you can trust and you know the whole story and the whole everything we know about the loss of trust and um, good source of information and disinformation and misinformation um, so I thought in Huff Post, what you had was a free to access popular website designed around people's lives that also did quality political reporting, quality investigative reporting. So like an amazing brand to kind of reach different audiences. And we did some fantastic things with Huff Post. Like we closed our London newsroom and just moved the whole operation onto the streets of Birmingham for a week. And the whole thing was about getting outside the bubble and asking different questions and getting closer to the audiences and we showed that you could grow your digital audience that way as well by providing quality news that spoke more loudly to the real issues that were affecting people's lives not the issues that we were talking about back in the bubble so that's been one of the themes of your career relating the powers of the state or the implementation of the powers of the state to the lived experience of people. Yeah, and exactly. That's yeah. a feature of everything that you do, really. Yeah, and I think that kind of came through strongly at, at kind of Tortoise. So I, I was a, one of the editor's partners who started up with Tortoise right at the beginning. And Tortoise is a kind of membership organisation. The slogan is slow down, wise up. And it's built around kind of events that bring people into the conversation about news. It's been going about three years now and it's it's really successful. It does brilliant journalism and it's really based around an idea about community and and openness in reporting. Slow news is there? Slow news, yeah. yeah, which kind of would have been antithesis to kind of the scoopy kind of deadline-driven kind of journalist reporter that I was early in, in my career. But... But actually, you know, I really learned the power of kind of not struggling to meet dead, deadly debt. I mean, it was a very fast paced environment. Startups are very fast paced kind of when you're building something new. But the, the actual journalism, the James Harding, who founded Tortoise, who was editor of The Times, director of news at the BBC, founded it with a, a brilliant commercial leader called Katie Fennick-Smith. And their whole thing has been to give journalists like me the time to go out and really thoroughly get underneath the story, which is how I kind of came to write a book as well. We'll come on to that. But another theme about your career is the combination of being a journalist and but also engaging 
in the system itself. So you're now chief executive of Demos, which is chaired by my predecessor. So that's mm -hmm. interesting and good. And you're very recently appointed as a member of the board of PHSO, the Ombudsman Service. So first of all, is it possible to do both things, to retain your independence as a journalist, but also be a participant in social policy implementation, I suppose, or, or something like that? Well, yes, because I'm by no means in any way, shape or form a politician. And I wouldn't say that in these roles I bring a... I think in, in, in these roles I bring leadership, so kind of knowing about running organisations and bringing organisations together. But I apply quite a lot of journalistic methodologies in that to, to understand systems, to understand how things inter, interact, to work together, and to understand the ultimate impact on people. And I think the thing that I've always been really really interested in. I think the driving kind of theme of my journalism is kind of where power meets people. Um, it's where states, the state really most sharply kind of interacts with people's lives. So I've reported on that as a journalist. At Demos, we put people at the heart of all our research and policy making. Demos is a think tank. We've been going for 30 years. We do a very wide range of research and policy making, but the common theme is that we listen to people first. We put people's experience at the heart of that. And then with PHSO, it's kind of at the other end of the system where the policy's been made and it's been enacted and it's had the effect on people's lives and where it's gone wrong and people have tried every kind of course of remedy, it comes to the PHSO. So you're seeing the kind of sharpest, sharpest end of where things go wrong practically and mistakes are made but also kind of there's something I'm learning from PHSO about some softer skills around the relationship between the state and individuals and how we communicate and how we overcome problems together so I think there's you know there's an absolute theme and I think my kind of skills and approach are kind of common across all of them I just have to be very clear about the different outcomes yeah. I'm doing in my different I met a, a new group of uh, ombudsman employees this week who joined in July and August and I asked them was there anything that had surprised them about joining us so I have no problems about asking you because you're you, you joined in May <laughs> yes <laughs> but I mean did anything surprise you what was your general reaction to to the organization so lots has surprised me because I've learned so much just this past couple of days. We've been in Manchester and the the casework team have been taking us through the whole process from when someone makes a call to the PHSO right the way through to conclusion and beyond. And so, I mean, so the detail, the care and attention and passion that goes in from this team of getting it right is really, really striking. And I think... I think the amount of how much people care is just, you know, really evident in all those conversations and made me feel quite humbled to be part of this, this organisation. Something that surprised me right at the outset, one of the first facts I learned was that 80% of the calls 
that comes through to PHSO, the kind of initial approaches, are people just looking for help that is so far before or beyond the PHSO's remit. And I think it speaks to the point that there we don't have enough of a front door to the state. We don't have enough of a contact point between people in the state. It's really quite hard to navigate if you need help. And in a way that kind of, you know, think about how we use Google and move seamlessly between email and maps and um, our bank accounts or whatever it is. Um, uh, Like the state is like the opposite of that. There are kind of dead ends all over the place and conflicting messages. And I think kind of thinking about the end user's experience kind of through all of that, um, it feels like a very kind of practical embodiment of the concepts that are talked about a lot around lack of trust in the state and lack of belief that the state will actually make things better. So, you know, that has been kind of quite revelatory to me and has focused my mind on on some important issues, I think. When I was in Catalonia on a visit, the ombudsman there had been given uh, a painting by a Spanish artist called Tapias. Mm. And he gave us, the ombudsman office, a copy of it. And it was described by the artist as representing a warm organisation, not a cold legal service, but something that embraced the needs of citizens, which I thought was very interesting. That's um, wonderful. And, and Tapias re- is a wonderful artist as well. I'm a huge fan, so I love that. Really reflecting what, what you're just saying. But you've written a book about this, which is called Behind Closed Doors. It's a, a very searing account of the problem of breakup of families. Would you tell us something a bit about that and, and what you found? So this came out of my work at Tortoise, where the editor asked a very simple question. He said, why are so many children being removed from their families now? Why are so many children being removed by the state and put into a care system that is struggling to provide a good life for them? And there are a lot of very simplistic narratives around this. In you know, If you go into some communities in this country, they have impressions of social workers as you know, child snatchers, as kind of people who will come and take your children. And in other parts of society, there's a narrative of feckless parents, abusive parents, useless parents who just can't look after their kids. And and I guess looking at, so I, the process for writing the book was to really kind of go through the data, looking at why, where this has happened, who it's happened to, what points in time the increases really came, what was happening in the wider world, and then putting that data aside and going out and listening to people. So spending hours and hours and hours in people's front rooms, in social work contact centres, in courtrooms, in the corridors of family courts where people are sat waiting to see what's going to happen to their family and listening to their experiences of that. And um, I think ultimately what I found is a system that has had so little care and attention and investment put into it that we now remove children before we've really done anything to support that family to stay together. 
social workers have so little resource they can call on to support a family, to solve problems related to mental health, substance misuse, poverty. You know, poverty is the number one driving factor of this. Um, that that kids are being removed into a system that is 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 absolutely failing them and not good enough. And the economic folly of it is just mad because the care system costs so much more than investing earlier in the cycle, investing in families. But it's like we don't trust families anymore. So it comes back to that point of trust between the state and families. Families don't trust that the state will help them because they haven't for so long and the state doesn't see the strength that exists with families it only sees the risk because social workers are so horrifically held to account when mistakes are made but there's no incentive in the system to sit with understood risk to give families a, a chance to grow the strengths that they do have i i think it's a superb piece of research and writing first of all because there's no magic bullet in what you're suggesting. You're saying this is multifaceted, it's complex. Secondly, you listen not just to the users of services, but the suppliers of services, and you give a very balanced account of the dilemmas of all the parties. And thirdly, it's about the real-life stories of, of many people who deserve a lot better than they get. So it's a, it's there's an impartiality and an empathy there which really illustrates what ombuds should be doing in their work to to make sure that they listen to everybody and they're evidence based. So you know, I I, I I recommend it. Thank you. I think there's something I came to really strongly believe as a result of doing that book is I fundamentally believe that there are very rarely goodies and baddies in a story. And there are baddies in this story. There are parents who kill their children and they usually have a story to tell as well, but they do very horrifically bad things. But the vast majority of people in that system are not bad people and they're not trying to be bad people. And I think that's, that's true in many, many contexts and it's made me think about whether there's a more compassionate way to do journalism that still holds to account, but gets to a more nuanced version of the truth by not falling for simplistic kind of stories about goodies and baddies. I think the, one of the big problems of public policy now is that we don't learn from the experience which is repeated time and time again. And that's a feature of, of your book, but many other things as well, particularly in the health service. So thank you for putting that on the table. So that point about public policy is, is a thing we're really passionate about at Demos as well, because um, we see a situation where policy making has been made in two broad ways over the last 20 years. One is partisan, so inherently divisive and very short term, so not tackling the really big issues, the systemic issues, the issues when systems interact and make things go wrong, um, but being very driven at kind of immediate results. Um, or technocratic, which is evidence-based and absolutely important, but misses out on the human experience. And so 
What we drive for is a different approach to more participatory policy making. So putting people at the heart of policy, we think you should get to the point where no policy has ever kind of started without the proper listening to the end user in the appropriate way. A very long time ago, Shirley Williams wrote a book called Politics is for People, (laughs) which was criticised as being bland, but on the other hand, it does get to a fundamental mm. issue which which needs to be addressed. We could go on talking mm. for a long time, but I'm being pressured to, to end. I want to end by saying to you we have 500 people plus who work here. We have 100 new people, many of them young graduates. What would be your advice to those people uh, about uh, developing their careers and their interests mm. as they move forward? I think in the work that I've seen at PHSO and the thing that I'm actually really ins- inspired by is the compassion in the work and and the compassion balanced with fairness and impartiality. That's really, really hard to get right. And sitting with the teams yesterday and hearing about the individual cases where they're trying to kind of balance the right level of empathy that acknowledges the hardship people have experienced um, and manages kind of their expectations of what the ombudsman can do, but holds the authorities to account, getting the balance between all those things. That's something that I learn from and will take away in, in kind of my activities and daily life I hope. Polly Curtis it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much on behalf of all our listeners have a good day and to everybody the sun is shining here in Manchester we hope it's shining wherever you are and we look forward to seeing you soon goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.